The Art Dealer Diaries are brought to you by Medicine Man Gallery, located for over 26 years in Tucson, Arizona, specializing in antique Native American art, early Western art, including the famed Maynard Dixon, as well as modern art. You can find everything online at medicinemangallery.com. There's over 6,000 objects to select from. Also, the Charles Bloom Murder Mystery Series, written by yours truly, me, Mark Sublett. There's six books in this series, and they follow the protagonist Charles Bloom through all the intrigue of the art world set in Santa Fe and the Navajo Nation. These can be found on Audible, eBooks, Amazon, and of course, the gallery at medicinemangallery.com. Great podcast today with Brian LaBelle. This guy is a very interesting cat. I think you're going to find it just as unique as anything I've done. This is an individual who literally started on his own dealing in antiques at 14, moved out, very successful, goes and becomes a cowboy, and I mean a real cowboy, and then gets into the Western art business and turns out to be the maybe the top dealer in this field in the world. And you know, we talk about interesting things like a $2 million Billy the Kid photograph. So if you want to know about the Old West and hear a very compelling story, stay tuned for Brian LaBelle. I've got Brian LaBelle. I grabbed him today out of a booth. He's very busy. He's setting up his show for uh, the objects in Santa Fe. And I said, Brian, please come and talk with me. And he did. So I'm going to find out all about Brian LaBelle, who owns a wonderful auction house, Brian LaBelle Auction House. And he also owns the High Noon Auction House. And we're going to get into those and what that's all about. But I want to find out. First of all, thank you for coming, Brian. You're welcome. Thanks for asking. Yeah. Well, I think you're an important mover and shaker in this community. And you're one of the top uh, dealers, if not the top dealer, in Western art. And when I say Western, I really mean uh, saddles, spurs, history, things that are related to the Old West. And uh, if you have those kind of objects, you're going to probably end up finding Brian's name out there. And so we're going to find out how he got into that and why he got into that and why I didn't, <laughs> for good reason. Because <laughs> you're smart. <laughs> uh, maybe, I don't know, because I didn't know enough. Still don't. Um, so tell me, Brian, where, where did you grow up? Uh, Massachusetts. Of course, all good cowboy dealers who came from Massachusetts. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so did you, literally your whole primary, secondary, tertiary school was in Massachusetts? Yep. Um, then I ran away from home to become a cowboy. Is that right? Yeah. And so when did you run away from home? Um, I, when I was uh, 22. And so growing up in Massachusetts, where did you grow up anyway? Um, in Chicopee. I don't know where that is. It's right outside of Springfield. How'd you get rid of that accent? You don't have one. Didn't have one. Yeah. Never had one. Did your parents, were they from Massachusetts? They were, but they were from the eastern part of the state, so they had a little bit one, yeah. And what did your mom and dad do? Uh, my mother worked at Smith & Wesson. My father was a baker. Interesting. And so did you learn any of those baking skills? No. None. 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 Did, he have, <laughs> did he have his own shop? No, he worked for Wonder Bread. He went for, so he had a good corporate job. Yep that he liked. And I bet when you ran away to be a cowboy, he thought this may not be what you should be doing, son. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Maybe even more turns. <laughs> Tell me about that. What was that like? Um, I just uh, went out to Cody, Wyoming, fell in love with it, went back to Smith and Wesson, gave two weeks notice and moved to Cody, took a job on a ranch. And how old were you at that time? Uh, 22. So you went through high school. Did you go to college at all? No, no college. So you got out of high school. And did you like art or anything, oh, history and all yeah. that stuff when so you were growing up I as a kid? I started doing antique shows when I was 12. Really? And I started setting up at them when I was 14. 
Wow. So what were you collecting at 12 and doing it? And was this by yourself? Um, yeah. Um, I was by myself. I had moved out of the house early. At 12? At 14. Oh, my gosh. And, uh, Why was, was that? Um, if you can say. I can, uh, because uh, my parents smoked and I couldn't take it and they wouldn't quit. So I left. Yeah. So that was <laughs> seems totally reasonable <laughs> exactly. to me. Exactly. <laughs> so you move out on your own at 14. But two years before that, you are starting to already do antique shows. Well, I only lived uh, 12, about 12 miles from Brimfield. Ah, so, so for those who don't know about Brimfield, it's like the greatest uh, antique show on earth. And it's twice a year? Three times. Was it three times a year at that time as well? It still is, yeah. yeah. Yep. So you kind of grew up going through the fields of Brimfield? Yep, I did. And what was what did drew you in at a 12-year-old? Comics? Uh, no, I was uh, uh, mostly guns. Yeah, and you knew nice. something because your mom worked at Smith and Wesson. Right. So you understood guns. Yeah. And what kind of gun? And so you could just go through there and buy a gun at twelve. Yeah, and um, just I started learning about antique guns, and you know back then it was when people would take you under their wing and teach you. Mm-hmm. And I had a good friend of mine that just passed away, J.R. Larue, that uh, uh, when I was fourteen, let me he drove me to gun shows and taught me. Things. And so you would look for old Colts or. Yep. I did Colts and Winchesters. Those were my anything remember, Western. Because and do you I remember Western. when you bought that first Colt or your first gun? Um, well, mostly the the first good real gun I ever bought was I was fourteen and I went to an auction in New Hampshire and bought a bunch of uh, about six hundred dollars worth of Winchesters. There was six of them at the time, and uh, I went to try to buy them at the auction house, and they told me I was too young. So somebody else st- stood up and bought them for me and handed them to me outside in the parking lot. Did you have so to pay him a little something for doing that? Yeah, I did. <laughs> yeah, what did you have to give him? Do you remember? No, I think it was 50 bucks. And That's a lot. It was. It Where was a lot of money. Where did you get 650 bucks as a kid that I age? I was already working. I was managing a movie theater, so I had uh, it, that was my tax refund. Wow. So you took <laughs> all the money that you earned working at a, at a theater, and what were you doing at the theater? I was managing the theater. Wow, and this is at like 12 or 14? Yeah, Yeah, buck and a quarter an hour. Yeah, and so you took everything (laughs) that you had earned the entire year, and you took that, and you turned it into how many guns was it? Um, Six. Six, and you for 650, 600 plus the kick to the guy who would do it. And then so what did you do with the guns? I went to a gun show, and I ended up with 12 guns after that. So did you trade them off, or did you? Yeah, traded them off and got other things and just continued. So you would take six, turn it to 12, 12, 24, yep. make money. And how long did it take you from when you started doing this? So you say goodbye theater. Oh, about two years. Yeah. So you work, you kept working at the theater oh, even yeah. though you were buying and selling. It was fun. Yeah. yeah. And so are you a theater, are you a film buff? I mean, you I was, on, yeah. yeah. I, you know, am still, but not as much. Westerns, I'm assuming? Anymore. Um, no, actually not. That's funny. Now that's funny because he also sells Western memorabilia. Well, because like they haven't just made a lot of good westerns lately. So yeah. it's, it's kind of so. Tough. What kind of movies did you like or do you like? Um, uh, it's across the board. I can't narrow that down. Yeah, because it. But you were somehow kind of drawn into that just because of your profession, what you were doing as a kid. Basically, yeah. And um, I had always loved the cowboy stuff. Just you know, you like everybody else, you grew up watching Roy and Gene on Saturday morning, and so you know. With, Went to a gun show in Albany, New York, and bought a pair of spurs. Uh-huh. How old were you it? when you did that? I was about 15. Um, who, and what kind of spurs are they? Uh, Mexican spurs. Old, Old 1870s kind of things? About 1900. Yeah. Yeah. And, but I thought they were cool. And what year would have that been in? Um, approximately. Say approximately 
68, something 67, somewhere in there. And you were 14? Yeah, I'm yeah. trying to figure, I'm trying to do the yeah, math. I know, yeah, I, it's I know. Not, it's not easy. It's easier for me than you. <laughs> and so you buy the Spurs for, what does a pair of Mexican I, Spurs I cost back traded, then? I traded about $100 worth of stuff for them. You got, that was a lot for those first. It was. Overpay? Uh, they're, they're worth right now about 100 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> so you started <laughs> I still to, have them. So you, you do? You? Yeah. And is it because? Because they're the first pair I ever bought. Yeah. yeah, smart. You know, I hear this over and over again from dealers that kept the first thing that they bought and, hang, and hung on to. I think it's a really wonderful thing when they do that. There's something there. Mm-hmm. The pool, I mean, it's, I mean, clearly you could have sold them a million times over and just pushed them on. But... There is some thread there. I think you clearly. You, I think you'd agree that you have to have those to show your beginning, kind of like the first dollar you own. Earn. I think it makes you feel good that you know this is where you get started in this part of your life. Yeah, yeah. And so, so, so you'd start setting up at Brimfield um, at about fourteen as well. No, I, I waited until I didn't set up from Brimfield till I was about eighteen, nineteen, right in there. So before that, fourteen to eighteen, you do antique. You'd set the up gun in shows. The, it was yeah. all gun shows. And you would just, and it was pretty much at that time all guns that you were dealing in. Yes, because you knew them, you understood them. <clears throat> right. Did you get burned many times when you were oh, first starting? Yeah. Yeah. A lot. Yeah, and that's, that's got to be hard though when you're a kid. You don't. I mean, you're paying for your own. You're living on your own. Mm-hmm. Every cent counts. What were the lessons that you learned by doing that? Um, to not assume anything when it comes to dealing with people. There's some some of the greatest people out there that don't look like they are. And um, some of the people that do look like they're the people you should be dealing with really aren't. And you get to know to, you know, to accept people that can teach you things and to ask questions. And, uh, you know, if people didn't answer my questions when I was at that age, I wouldn't be here today. So, you know, there's four or five people that... I can look back on and say that uh, these people helped. They gave you advice. And yeah. who, who would those? You mentioned the one individual. but Yeah, and there's, uh, you know, and most of them have passed now. And, you know, Eddie Halbert um, um, from Winchester worked at Winchester. Um, and another man that worked at Colt. And then when I got into the cowboy material, um, people like Ernie Hootenpile out of Oklahoma that would just sit and talk to you for hours and hours. And say, here's what you got to learn, kid. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's the same as, you know, like now with what, what you do teaching people and watching your videos and things. It's, it's identical to that. But these people would sit down back then and talk to you because we didn't have the vehicle. At the, yeah, the there's internet no internet. Was. There's nothing. Yeah. So, you know, I've learned everything about baskets and blankets by watching you. And <laughs> back then, those people tied. It's just few and far between anymore that want to teach you anything. Because yeah. when business, when this became a business and the money got big... Um, people were afraid if they taught you something, you'd steal their customer, and or, or get the object, and they don't have it. Exactly. Yeah, they look at it as proprietary information, mm-hmm. and they're afraid to share knowledge. Yeah. And uh, I think that's a shame. I understand it, you know, and but I figured the more people know, the better our clients are, the more educated. Hopefully, we can kind of get rid of some of the people that shouldn't be doing this kind of stuff and and avoid the pitfalls. And we know there's a lot of pitfalls when you're buying any kind of art, Western, Indian, I don't care what it is, modernist, masters, everything. It all falls into the same group of buyer beware and you need to educate yourself. Exactly. Yeah. And you see it every day. Clearly, have done that. I know many times I've called you on things. Uh, Western objects that I get that I think might be great or could be great. I don't have the knowledge. Um, I usually can tell old. I can understand history. 
Uh, but sometimes I'm surprised and sometimes I'm disappointed. Mm-hmm. And I've had them both. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and I continue, I will continue <laughs> to have those. So you're 18 now, and that's when you started working at uh, the gun factory? Yep, uh, a week after graduating from high school. And what, what did you do there? Um, uh, odd jobs for a while, and then became a fitter, which is you know assembling and building guns. And what so kind of guns a, would that be? Um, Smith & Wesson revolvers. And so that had to help you a lot, actually, in your business, because you understood the mechanics of firearms and oh. what has been messed in, with and yeah. not messed with and yeah and the and the one thing it taught me that relates to and working in a gun factory is very in, intriguing because of the things you learn in our business about people that claim things are absolute you know this couldn't have ever been done this way because nobody ever did it when you work in a place like that you realize yeah every, pretty much everything could be done yeah you know, you'd get a gun and somebody say no they didn't ever made it like that and i'd say yeah they did because i did while I was working there, and that, and you learn those kind of things that um, people, especially in the gun business, that think they have something that uh, is not right because there's a piece of it that's not normal, and that can relate to everything, whether it's a basket or a pot or a pair of spurs. When somebody says that Kelly Brothers never paid a pair of spurs with this big of a shank, why not? Yeah. And, and maybe that day not. who was working on it was a guy who liked bigger shanks. Or the guy or who walked it. in and slipped the guy an extra $10 bill and said, make me these. Yeah, that makes sense. And so how long did you work in the gun factory? Um, I was there for eight years. Oh, that's a long time. Yeah. A really long time. So from 18 until 26. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and you kind of worked your we'll way up the ladder. Yeah, yeah, seven years. Yeah, seven years. <laughs> 25. Yeah. So, or 20, 26 is when you left? Uh, around 25, yeah. And that's when I started going back and forth to Wyoming and... So, and you worked your way up the the post up the when you're working in the factory, you got more and more expertise, and probably right. were making more money and, yep. and all that. And your mom was still working there. Yeah, yeah, she was. So, what was it that it was a desk, that first trip? You said I'm going to go see what the West's all about. I went to the Winchester Gun Show in Cody and fell in love with the town. Mm-hmm. And uh, easy to do. Yeah, went back and decided to move there. You know, supplied my, uh, you know, I guess, supported my habit of cowboy stuff by working as a gunsmith. And so, when you were working at Smith and Wesson, you were also doing gun. Sh- you were doing gun shows. Yep. You were doing Brimfield. You were still bu- you were buying and selling on the side. Yep. And that had at that point when you decided to quit, had it surpassed? You were making more money doing the stuff on the side, or your interest was just oh, no, greater. Oh I was making really good money at Smith and Wesson. Yeah. I just didn't like the factory. I didn't. I wasn't yeah. cut out to be in a factory. Yeah, you you couldn't be creative. Right. Yeah. And so, what did your mom and dad say? Especially your mom when you said, "I'm leaving. I'm going to Cody." Um, they didn't know what the hell I was doing, and you know, it took them until until the first time they saw me on television. They thought I was just a thief. <laughs> they, they really didn't understand what I did for a living. I'm sure they thought I was a drug dealer or something. Cause yeah, because you're making lots of money. Right. Yeah. And uh, who could pay do that for buying and selling old old junk? Yeah, because it was just old junk to them. Yeah. The you know, first time I went to Brimfield with my mother. Um, I saw a set of Catlin books that I wanted, and I pulled $600 in cash out of my pocket and handed it, and she grabbed it back, put it in my pocket, and said, you need that to pay bills. And I said, no, I, you know, this is pay- how this business is how works. I'm paying my and, bills. And, yeah, because people didn't understand. If they hadn't been in that position, if they've always been in a corporate world. And so you put them back out, and you got your books. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure she was very... It was very surprising, yeah. Very, I'm sure she was very pleased with you as yeah. well. 
Yeah, I'm sure you know, when you have this good job and leaving, yeah, it had to have been difficult for them to... Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, they, they never understood it until they saw me. You know, when they saw me on, I think it was the Learning Channel, there was a program on there. And um, it kind of legitimized what I was doing yeah. to a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. It was a, it was a different kind of life. Very much As so. You know. <laughs> yeah. No, it is. Yeah. I mean, I had lots of people say, what are you doing? You're leaving medicine to become a what? An art dealer? Come uh-huh. on. What's that all about? That's weird. Um, greatest thing I ever did for just, I enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And I, clearly you enjoy it too, because you've been yeah, doing this it. for 40 years probably. So yeah. when you go out to Wyoming to Cody, what do you do there when you get out there? I worked as a gunsmith and a sign painter. And, uh, and where'd you get the skill for the sign painting? I didn't. I just started. I just decided I could do it, and I did. So. And was it because of a financial, or you go, I think I can do it, or it was fun well, and creative? It was creative. Yeah. It was something I wanted to do that Had you ever paint, paint, do you paint, or do you no. create art at all? No. Don't have that urge to itch? No. Um, I, I don't know. I just never did. Yeah. Because yeah. you see people like John and Terry Moore, and you know how good they are, and you go, oh, exactly. my God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Watching him yesterday just drawing a Mickey Mouse while we're having lunch. Yeah. You know. His <laughs> no, I know. They're, they're so good. It's just, it is. I mean, I feel the same way. I haven't painted. I don't, you know, just when you have great artists and you watch mm-hmm. them, and they make, they make it look easy, and of course it isn't. They've been doing it forever. It's tough. So you sign-painted. You uh, work as a gunsmith. What does a gunsmith do exactly? I don't, I don't really just repairs know. guns. So just somebody repair brings guns. one in. Yeah. And so if somebody brought in an old one, would you go, oh, nah, we can repair it, but we could also probably buy this? Exactly. Make them an offer. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it was a way to accumulate things that, you know, people might not know that, that um, you know, um, you always... You know, the best thing to do in this business, of course, is tell somebody what they have. Sure, of course. So, of course, you tell somebody, you know, you've got something great here, and I'd like to buy it and see what they say. But a lot of people said, no, I've been using this for the last 40 years, and I want to still use it, so fix it. And Yeah, and a lot of those guys are using their guns for varmints oh, yeah. or whatever it might be. Yep. You know, these are hand-me-downs that they've used. I know my grandfather had a twenty-two that went to my dad to me and mm-hmm. those kind of things. Um, and, you know, not valuable, but used. And, mm-hmm. uh, so how long did you stay in the sign business and the Smith business? Not very long. I got a job on a, uh, with an outfitter uh, guiding fishing trips and hunting trips and did that for quite a while, for long, quite a few long, years. How long? A couple of years? More than a couple of years. Well, yeah, probably eight years. That's total. a long time. And um, Did was, you know how to fish? I mean, Oh, yeah. Yeah, I and grew this up is, doing all that stuff, and I went out there and uh, got a guide's license, became a guide, and... Uh, did that and went to work on a, you know, running the horses on a ranch, on a famous ranch outside of Cody. And that the collector, Larry Laram, who owned the ranch, was one of the top Western collectors in the world. And he had every basket and pot and textile, original oil paintings at the ranch. And um, so I got to work on that ranch and I got to walk around these buildings full of artifacts that were fantastic. And I just fell in love with them. Wow. Now, what were you doing on the ranch? Um, a little bit of everything, you know, cleaning stalls, fixing fence, training horses, chewing horses. And so why did you take a job like that? It seems like it's a step down from smithing and that. It's outside. It was you, outside. So you just it. wanted it for the pure beauty and to be out there and, yeah. to, and, and be a cowboy. You were yeah. a cowboy, basically, yeah. right? You're fixing yeah. fences and that kind of stuff, too? Yeah, doing yeah, that's fine. everything. Yeah, and that. That's not fun. And uh, so you work for this. It just so happens this guy is a great collector. 
and he has the best of the best and it's all throughout the ranch so you would spend your free times going through the ranch and looking at it yeah yeah and just learning about it and reading every book he had on it uh, and, uh, did he come and talk to you at all about no it? he had been he was dead at that point I see. and uh, the ranch was uh, at that time um, owned by um, uh, Brooks Brothers <laughs> and uh, you know, I was working there and it was it was just a fun it was a fun time and a learning experience and um, you know really opened my eyes to a lot of different things when you walk into a mess hall and there's an original Russell on the wall yeah and you you have to learn you know what it is and yeah, it's how, fun. how long did it take you to realize hey the stuff that's on the walls where I'm eating is actually a million dollar painting um, well that's um, kind of what got me in the business was I was there one time and somebody bought a pair of spurs that I was wearing and they paid me way too much money for them which made me start wondering you know what this market was whether there was a real Western market and having a background in antiques already I just started I got in the truck and started traveling to shows so they literally bought the spurs off your heels yeah and did you they just came up and said I'll pay you this and you go of course you said yeah I'll do it but yeah. did it some <laughs> part of you go uh oh no, I, you know, not really, because at that time, you know, you trust people and you don't know what, you know. You what just, were those spurs, do you know? Uh, yeah, it was a pair of Kelly Brothers, and um, he offered me $300 for him, and at the time I was making 350 a month. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it was an easy decision. <laughs> and what were they worth, do you think, at that time you bought them? I think they were worth that. Yeah, so he paid That's you a fair it. amount. He did, yeah. Um, but now you've got 350 in your pocket, and you mm -hmm. sold spurs, which you didn't. You, yeah, you were surprised, and so that kind of changed your trajectory at that point. Yeah, I went out and spent the money on more cowboy stuff. And what did you go buy? I bought a pair of. I bought a. I went to Billings, Montana, to an antique show and bought a pair of chaps, and um, I think they were like a hundred bucks. Is that the first time you'd bought chaps? Uh, yeah, it was, except for the ones I was using, except yeah. for the ones I was wearing a pair of collectibles. So, how did yeah. you know to buy those as being something of value um, versus a working pair? I really didn't. I was taking a chance, and um, like as you probably know, most most you learn most by buying something and making a mistake. Yeah. So I made a lot of mistakes. Was that one? But I learned a lot. No, they worked out fine. Yeah, they did fine. Yeah. So. Did you go? Hmm. I wonder if I can sell the ones I'm wearing. <laughs> and did you? No, I didn't. I still have those too. <laughs> still have those too. And do they have value, or are they just working no, chaps? Just, just working chaps. They're working chaps. So at that point, you said, "Okay, I think I can make a living doing this on Western material as long as I can find the material." And was there what kind of time frame was this? What years was this been in? Um, well, getting into it full time was probably about um, in the early '80s was um, mid 80s was because I opened my store in Cody in um, 87 so it would have been earlier than that early 80s and, and that was, was really kind of the start of a lot of this great western uh, interest wouldn't oh, you say yeah. was it yeah. right at about it was that the time yeah, yeah it was and there was books coming out and when did high noon start their operation Do you um know? we started um i started the show in cody um in june of 89 and they started in 88 so they started theirs january of 89 so it's six months after we started our show in cody and so what did you go so in 89 so 89 is when you also opened your store in cody yes yeah and so what did you decide you were going to deal in at that point uh, just pure cowboy it was anything gun, that guns was related. And spurs and shafts saddles hats Anything cowboy. And, Books. and where, because the internet wasn't going, you didn't have any internet, where were you finding that kind of material? Word of um, mouth? Mostly on the East Coast. 
Yeah. I was still doing Brimfield. I was still doing Brimfield three. The best saddle I've ever found came out of Brimfield. What was that? Um, it was a J.S. Collins in brand spanking new condition. Um, and what and, did you remember? Can you tell us about that when you found it? That's always, um, I think, yeah, exciting. It was, um, it was hanging in a barn, and a guy told me about it at the show, and I said, go get it and bring it back to me. I'll pay you. And he brought it back, and um, you know, it's on the front cover of a couple of books now. And <laughs> the best pair of spurs I ever found uh, was at Brimfield. And you know, people like where I worked at Valley Ranch, there was a dude ranch for wealthy people. And everybody that went there had gone to Harvard or Princeton, and it was owned by Laram and the Brooks Brothers, and they brought all these wealthy people out from New York. And um, they would come out, buy spurs, buy shaps, buy The saddles. best. The best. Very didn't best. didn't get used And much. they'd take it back home, and they'd take it back to Connecticut or Massachusetts and put it in a storage. And just I went back there and put signs out saying that's what I was buying, and people would say, I got something in the, in the garage. And would you go around Brimfield and put up signs or tell people? How did you do that? No, i just go around hand out my card. You know, yeah. And I set up, and people got to know me. Yeah, and they knew you were honest and would pay a good price and that you were buying this stuff that a lot— it was just kind of taking off, really, I think, as price structure-wise, wasn't it, at that oh, time? Oh, definitely. Yeah. It was a learning process. We didn't know. You know, it, we had to guess at what somebody would pay for something. <laughs> and you tried to be fair with people— and, you know, the first time, uh, the gentleman that um, I was telling you about, J.R. LaRue, from, uh, he lived in Maine at the time, and he was at a gun show in Maine, and he called me, and he said, we're at a gun show here, and we have a belt and holster that nobody wants, and they want $300 for it, and nobody's willing to buy it. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I'll buy it. And he sent it out from Maine, and we put it in our very first Cody auction and brought $12,000. Oh, my. And that's the great thing about the auctions is we would have never known to ask that or even dreamed of asking that. If I would have put it on my table, I would have asked 450 And what was <laughs> it that made that piece so valuable? Condition. And, and Mager? Um, Gottlich, out of Miles City. And what happened is that was at the, right at the beginning of when you got three or four people deciding it's time to start buying this stuff. And they were smart enough to know if you buy the best, you know, um, that's when you pay the money. And it made gun leather take off for years. It was that. It was that, that one was the holster that nobody would buy right. for three fifty. Right. Yeah. Isn't that incredible? I find that incredible. That is how the art world works. Right. Yeah. And something switch, some flips, and things, or you know, people start to recognize quality or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And so you now have your gallery going. Um, it's the '80s. And you start the auction, the late 80s, now you start the auction. And so what happens from, say, in the 90s? So now you're into the 90s time frame. How did things transverse and what happened? It with was you? just a really good time. You know, it was the heyday of what we were doing. Everything was going fine. Um, it was uh, before the Internet when things were rare. You know, and we, after that came along, we found out things weren't as rare as we thought they were. And um, and what specifically were not as rare? Was it the guns, the spurs, the saddles, or just kind of everything? Kind of everything, but it was the mediocre stuff. It was when eBay started. When eBay started, you could find mediocre material every day, uh, whether it was books or art or anything like that. And back then, they could sell guns, I think, too, didn't they? Yeah, they yeah. did. Yeah, because our auctions were up on eBay at one time, mm -hmm. and you could sell anything out there. And um, what, it, what it taught people was, you know, why should I be buying this stuff? There's too much of it out there. 
So you start rethinking what you're doing, and instead of selling a hundred, three hundred dollar saddles, you start selling that one three thousand dollar saddle or thirty thousand dollar saddle because it was easier. The it, price started to be <clears throat> determined too, to some extent, right? Oh, it really it it was a price guide. Yeah. yeah, the internet became a price guide like it is now with books and everything. When when I was buying rare Wyoming books for three hundred dollars, it's because I only ever saw two copies in my life. And now you go to eight books, and there's 530 copies. <laughs> so, so it's really depressed that market to some extent. Oh, it has. That's why the best still sells. Yeah. yeah. And, and there's uh, still those rare, rare books that you get that no one ever sees. Oh, definitely, yeah. And do you do an internet search and go, okay, there's nothing here if it's one of those ones you've never heard or never seen? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you just kind of decide what price must be from that? Basically, yeah. But that's why I love the auction business so much is that it's a... In most cases, I'm not going to say all the time, but in most cases, it's a fair way to arrive at a price. Yeah. Well, you have more than one person interested. Right. And they help determine the price. That's right. no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. Or not determine the price in some cases. Yeah, it works both ways. It's um, if the right, you know, is if people decide they don't care about this stuff anymore, or if you get two people that, you know, like we've been in that position where two people are drinking too much. (laughs) (laughs) Is that why you give out the free liquor? Yeah, they have fun. (laughs) And so in the 90s, it was a heyday, but then you start to see, I mean, I got my website up in 1996. By the 2000, things are really changing. eBay's going and you start to see um, solidification, I think, of price structure to some extent. But not not as much as it has later on because you're still very active and busy and now set, you're probably setting records every year every auction every oh yeah yeah definitely yeah and to me i mean i couldn't ever wrap my head around still can't all the different nuances of spurs for let's just say because mm-hmm. that's one of them because it has to do with maker time age mm-hmm. condition rarity and all that how does one go about figuring that out in today's world even um well, it's it's more about experience. You figure it out by, you know, as long as you're traveling, you're constantly traveling, looking at things, looking at collections, going to museums, and seeing how much stuff really is out there. And this is where a network of people come in handy where, you know, you call and say, have you ever seen anything like this? Um, the big thing is getting to know whether it's original. Yeah. Seeing enough of it to know that this something's been changed or something. Because originality has more to do with it it's the same i learned in the gun business early on you take a ten thousand dollar gun and you refinish it you got a five hundred dollar gun and it's the same with spurs or anything that we have once you alter it it's not like cars where you can restore every single piece and it's worth more money it doesn't work that way and do you see uh fakes and frauds that are being made of spurs Oh, yeah. 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 I've got a really nice collection of them. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The hard way to learn, right? Yes. Well, I've gone out specifically and bought a lot of things that I knew were fake so I could show people. Yeah, I think that's smart. I've done that, too, on this and say, this is why this isn't an Navajo rug, and let me show you why. Right. And uh, I think sometimes by having those, it helps. Uh, people to really understand if they can feel touch and go oh yeah I see it now oh, lighter and different color da, da, da. Mm-hmm. and but is there an internet source other than maybe following your auctions to p- figure out price structure for these kind of things not really because it's all over the place you know it's the same like you see in the art world we just sold a bronze for I think forty five hundred dollars there's one up on eBay for um, twenty six thousand um, it's been up there for three years yeah. You know, and but if somebody's just doing an internet search, that's what they're going to see. 
Yeah, we see that, and they, they, you know, all the time. Well, there's one up on eBay that's like, and it's like, yeah, well, it yeah. may be up there, but there's also pieces of pie for ten thousand up there that sure, look you know, like, you know, yeah. an animal. And being up on eBay and actually selling on eBay are two different things. And an actual auction that goes through with the price is, is it kind of sets the market for that. I do find it hard to. Um, understand the, uh, the spurs and the uh, saddles and the things. I know certain makers and marks are very important. Which are the some of the best makers and marks for, for those kinds of things that people would want to know? Well, you know, like spurs, um, you know, the most popular are the known names, like G.S. Garcia and people like that, that people know. Kelly and... Yeah, Kelly and Crockett, they know that. But those aren't the rarest ones. They mass-produced things. They made a lot of material. You know, you get Madueno and all these other great California makers that didn't make so much stuff. Um, but people don't know the name when you talk to them, only certain collectors do. So, you know, if you take a pair of um, Crockett Spurs and put them next to a pair of Boone Spurs, everybody's going to think the Crockett's are worth more money, and they're not. Because of rarity. Yeah, exactly, the rarity. But... You know, and a lot of it has to do with, um, you know, it's been an argument between Texas collectors and California collectors. Why would people spend money on these ugly Texas spurs that are just iron with a little piece of silver when you can get a beautiful, fancy pair of spurs in California? And the, what it comes down to is historic, rarity and historic. These guys in Texas were building these spurs in the middle of nowhere on some ranch mm-hmm. with a hand-fired forge. And um, they only made 10 pair because it took them two and a half weeks to make them. And the guys in California had a big factory in San Francisco. So, you know, they, they level each other off. And they, so then you have to get down to the condition and the rarity of the, each one. So which are worth more? Is it Texas or California or is it case by case basis? It's a basis? case by case. By case. Yeah. yeah, you can get a great pair of Maine and Winchester spurs that will bring 25000 Then you sell, we sold a pair of Boone spurs last year for... You know, thirty-two thousand. Um, it's you know, it's all about comes down to the rarity of, as with anything, of how many pieces have you ever seen in your life. And what's the most expensive pair of spurs have sold? Do you know? Um, well, publicly versus supposedly privately is a is a big uh, thing. And um, publicly, I'd say uh, we're probably looking at about at uh, two hundred twenty-five thousand, I believe. Um, for a pair of spurs that belong to a very important person and were a phenomenal pair of spurs on their own. Um, and then, you know, the, but the majority of really good spurs are in the 25 to 50 range. Um, there's not 25 a lot. to 50,000, so yeah. people know. Yeah. But not to say you couldn't get a great pair of spurs from the 20s for $1,500 either. Oh, definitely. Yeah. There's a lot of those out there, and that's the great part of it. You know, there is an entry level on here. You can collect Berman spurs, which are really great true cowboy spurs from the 1870s, 1880s, and you can buy those for three hundred dollars. Yeah. So it, it it you can get interested in collecting. Now, one of the things you've gotten into too is not only the Western early historic stuff, but you also do things that are Hollywood related, Roy Rogers, things like that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that market. That's a totally different market, I would think. It is. It's completely, it's a, it's a very different market because it's a grouping of people that grew up at the right time, watching Roy, watching Gene, um, these kind of things where they grew up. They made a success of themselves. So you've got the right age group of people that have become successful and they have the money to buy what they want. And that's what drives the market. My opinion is it's going to be a very short-lived market 
for because you know these people are getting older and um, it's still there we just sold the Lone Ranger saddle for $162,000 the one that was used by Clayton Moore in the TV series and what was the estimate on one like that do you remember um, 30 to 50,000 yeah so it made three times the high estimate yeah and why was that do you think um, we always try to put we, we when we do estimates it's it's based on past things you can't just guess it you know they are all educated guesses anyways but you got to be close to what something else has done so you can't really give a lot of credence to it because Clayton Moore wrote it we estimated more at what it was worth as a true bowl and saddle and then so it was a great a, saddle with great provenance it was a thirty thousand dollar saddle that had really nice provenance so and it took two people who wanted it or more exactly there was actually um six people that wanted it. that wanted it yeah and um you know that market we we spent three years liquidating the roy rogers estate Did you ever and get to meet roy I did. I, I didn't meet him. I looked at him. Yeah. <laughs> How about Gene? How about uh, for no, Autry, Gene Autry? No. I actually got to meet Gene Autry. Yeah, I did. I've met Jackie several times. Yeah. <laughs> Not Gene. Yeah, I did get to meet him. He came around one of the shows once at the, I think we were doing it at something in LA or Autry, and it was for the Autry, and mm-hmm. he came around and said hi. And Yeah, and these people were real heroes to these people, so they want a piece of what they have. Though that will potentially be a big problem, I guess, 20 years from now for our kids who don't know who Roy Rogers is. They don't know the names. You know, when I told um, a very well-educated man, when he walked in and looked at the Lone Ranger saddle, I said that was the one Clayton Moore rode. He said, never heard of the guy. Yeah. Did he know who Lone Ranger was? He did, because he had seen the movie with Johnny Depp. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> so, you know, that was, which, you know, almost destroyed that market. So <laughs> <laughs> That did why? Um, we sold, um, we sold um, Clayton Moore, the, who was the Lone Ranger. We sold his estate the day before the movie opened. Uh-huh. And everything went through the roof. It was great. Everybody loved their Lone Ranger. The movie did so poorly with people that loved their Lone Ranger that the market collapsed for a while. Interesting. It, was very, it went straight down. And um, now it's back up again. And it was, it, I know some people did like it, but it was the true Western aficionados that didn't find it oh, to their taste. Yeah. yeah, they hated it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little too strange for them. Yeah, yeah. As somebody put it the other day, I was at a, a Western conference in Springfield, Missouri, and one of the speakers said it was a great comedy. Yeah, it was and different. As long as it was you different. looked at it as a comedy. I think maybe if you came from it at a different time frame, we knew what Roy Rogers, you know, we knew what that was. Um, as a Lone Ranger, I should say. And uh, I think younger kids found it. I think they liked it. I think the younger generation did. Yeah. did like it a lot. Yeah. But it's a different, yeah, but they would, I mean, maybe you'll be selling Johnny Depp memorabilia from that, you know, mm-hmm. later on. Maybe that's where that fills the void. Yeah. You know, yeah. I don't know. We hope. We hope that there's there stays an interest, you know. It's, uh, it's fathers teaching sons or daughters and... Well, one of the things, the most interesting things that I've seen go through your auction, and I think you would probably would agree, is a great photograph that you had of Billy the Kid. One mm-hmm. of the one of three, maybe. No, it was one of four originally. Four. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there was a it was a quarter plate tin type. So when the photographer took the photograph, it would have made four images. So four images of Billy the Kid, and most people know who Billy the Kid is out there, but for those who didn't, you might even tell them who Billy the Kid was. You'd be surprised. There's some people who won't know who Billy the Kid yeah, is. Yeah, he, um, he became famous during the Lincoln County War in New Mexico. Um, he, be, you know, he was considered 
because of the books that were written about him to be uh, a murderer, an outlaw, and uh, the what makes him intriguing is everybody's still arguing about that today. How many people he really did kill? How really bad he was? Was he? He was more of a, like a Robin Hood figure. And um, then, of course, during the the movies, they made more movies about Billy the Kid than anybody. And then when the Young Guns came out and um, these more modern movies about Billy, he became even more famous than he ever was. So his, um, from the fact they were writing books about him in the 1880s and movies about him in the 1990s, he's been famous for a long time. And when did he die? Would have been... Now you're getting me on this yeah, one. Sorry. Yeah, that's all right. I'm just not my But mind. 1880s time. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, when yeah, was this? I know the exact date. Yeah, I'm sure. When was this photo <laughs> taken? Yeah, like I said, I pulled him out of his booth. Uh-huh. When was that photo taken, the one that you sold? Um, it was taken in 78, uh, I believe. So, so, yeah. yeah. So this is one of four images of Billy the Kid. And mm-hmm. It's that famous one. You'll see it everywhere. I mean, you've seen that. I mean, it's not a big uh, image. How big is that? It was, it was very the small, size right? of a credit card. The size of a credit card. Yeah. And how did that come into your possession um it had been in the same family since the day it was taken wow billy handed it to one of his best friends and his best friend put it in his pocket and it stayed in that family until they called me and said that they wanted to sell it it had been in the lincoln county museum for a few years they got mad at the museum there was a parting of the ways they pulled it out of the museum and called me and asked me if i'd sell it for them and so I guess when you got that call, you actually go, oh, this is real because of the history. I knew the family name immediately. Yeah, you yeah. knew. You, did you know the piece? I knew the piece, yeah. Yeah, yeah. the, the Upham tintype, you know, it, that's, uh-huh. you know, when, when he said, this is Mr. Upham, I knew exactly yeah. <laughs> who it was. Did your heart start to race? Oh, yeah, definitely. Huh. Yeah. And so you, get, you, so you know this is a great piece. It's great at the Providence. It's mm-hmm. only one of four that are known, right? Yeah, well, they've known that there's only one. The Upham was the only one that they believe existed. There's stories about them being nailed to walls, um, being lost. Um, so is this the only known? It's the only known one, yeah. nobody, Everybody believes the other three were destroyed. I see. So this is it. Yes. If you want an image of Billy the Kid, yeah. this is the one and the only one. So how do you price it? We price it based on what historic photographs. We knew it was the best historic photograph to come up to auction, and the best one had sold for about three hundred and fifty thousand. So we estimated it three hundred to five hundred thousand, based on what had been done in the past. Yeah, we believed that it was worth over a million. We did. We did believe that. And um, but nothing had sold historically of that type for more than three hundred thousand at that right. point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember. I mean, we were talking about this a little bit before, but I remember when I saw that. And I saw the estimate, and I thought, this is something that probably should be bought. Mm-hmm. Even though I've never paid that much for a photograph, I really don't know historic photographs, but the history seemed so compelling. And the fact you have one of one uh, seemed like it would be something that would, you know, how are you going to find another? Exactly. Yeah. And uh, though it didn't quite make... Three hundred to five hundred thousand. What happened at that auction that day? What was that like? Um, it was really exciting, um, and uh, we watched. Uh, there was, I think, believe it was twelve people into a million, about six people into a million and a half, and then two people into two million, and, um, and that was it. And it was. Uh, what did it hammer for? Uh, two million with a. It sold for two point three million with the buyer's premium. Yeah. 
And was the family in the room or were they around? Oh, yeah, they were in the room. Yeah, what were they doing? They were high-fiving. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the comment the next morning at breakfast when the, when Mr. Upham looked at his wife and said, um, would you get me another cup of coffee? She says, get your own damn coffee. I'm a millionaire. <laughs> <laughs> Multi-millionaire, actually. <Exactly. laughs> and so that must have been a whirlwind because I would imagine every press in the country wanted a picture of it and wanted to talk about it. Oh, I was pulled off to the side of the road several times. I was in Wagon Mound, um, New, New Mexico, Mexico, which is nowhere on but beautiful. the side of the road doing a live interview with Drive Time Scotland. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was on the BBC. We were in the New York Times. It was, yeah, it was... Something. And what did people want to know at that time? What was so interesting? Was it the price, the history? What was it? They wanted to know why Billy was fam- as famous as he was. Why was he, you know, why did people decide he was famous? And a lot of it was New Mexico. New Mexico wanted him to be famous. New Mexico, the governor was interested in him. Everybody wanted him yeah. to be. And they wanted to hold on to him as their big tourist draw. He was for Fort Sumner, yeah. which is where he was buried. And he was, you know, that's just a very short distance from where I grew up in Portales. And, you know, we all knew, you know, Billy the Kid's buried there. And I think his stone got stolen half a dozen times. And mm-hmm. I don't know, is it still there or did they have to? No, Sumner sold off pretty much everything. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so you get complete massive exposure throughout the world. So how many Billy the Kid knockoff looking objects came your way after that? To this day, we still see a minimum of two a week. Yeah. And, and they're old photographs look, often that they go, this is yesterday. him, I know it is. Yep. And so how do you deal with it? How do you handle that kind of stuff? Um, it's gotten to the point because of litigation these days and saying things about people or objects. Um, we just say it's not for us. Yeah. And we leave it at that. Yeah, because if they say, if you say, no, this isn't Billy the Kid, even though you know it isn't Billy the Kid, mm-hmm. and they go, no, well, it's worth $2 million and you just destroyed it, then you're in trouble. Mm-hmm. You know, we all take it. You know, there are people out there that say, well, you don't want to find another one because it'll you know, take away the glory of selling the only one. And that's not true. That's how we make our living. We want to find more. Sure. And we want to find great ones. Um, but they come out, and people always do stories on them, and they're in the paper all the time. Uh, there was a story about one last week in the New York Post. Uh, there's one that just That was came supposed out. to be another Billy the Kid? Yeah. And what yeah. happens to those kind of things? Um, usually they just f- drift away, quietly drift away, because people have made a claim, you know, and then you get other people, other supposed experts um, that make claims. And when they're proven wrong, um, they just kind of quietly go away. Have any sold since then as supposed Billy the Kid for big money, even no. though they may or may not be? A lot of them have been offered. Yeah. And a lot of them people think they are. In fact, the story in the Post talked about the one selling for $5 million. Well, the one it was offered at $5 million, but it's never sold because nobody believes it's Billy except for the person trying to sell it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of that out there, and we see it constantly. My file on my computer that just says bad photos is getting to the point where I need another computer just yeah. to keep it. But there must have been some pretty interesting things that came up, too, because people go, this guy can get great amounts for outlaws oh. like Jesse James and other individuals. Did you end up getting some of those things, too? Oh, yeah. In fact, in January in Mesa, at our show, in, at the Mesa show in January, we're selling the foremost collection of Western photographs in the world. Wow. We're selling the Bob McCubbin collection. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, we're talking 1,800 photographs. The You know, the... Doc Holliday's graduation photo from dental school that he signed on the back, oh things like that. 
Yeah. And that's going to be in Mesa and Phoenix? Yeah. Or Mesa, yeah. near Phoenix. And that's in January, like January yeah. Jan- 22nd. 27th, I think. 20, yeah. Yes, right in there. And you also had some kind of Billy the Kid thing you got too, didn't you? Yeah, actually, um, that's there's a collection of um, 1,800 photographs and five artifacts. And the artifacts are all special. And the best one is the knife Billy the Kid was carrying when he was killed by Pat Garrett. Yeah, and that was near Las Cruces, going over Oregon Pass, somewhere yeah. in that region? Yeah, yeah. and it was um, at the Maxwell Ranch. Um, and uh, it, the, the knife has been in the Maxwell to Gonzalez family ever since it was dropped. It was handed to Billy to go cut a piece of meat. And he took the knife, walked into uh, Maxwell's house, and Pat Garrett shot him. He dropped the knife. Um, his so-called supposed girlfriend who had handed him the knife picked the knife back up. And it's been in the same family ever since. You know, it's perfect provenance. So since which is, as you know, it's important. Yeah. And, and what kind of knife is it? Just a cheap $10 buoy, uh, butcher knife. Just yeah. a little wooden handle oh, butcher knife. But it was, he had it and it was his. Exactly. And what was, do you have an estimate on what that's going to bring? Um, right now we're looking at probably somewhere around seven to 900000 right in there. Yeah. Isn't that something? Yeah. That's a rare thing. That and that's how important Billy is. Yeah, and so when you got that call for the knife, did you know about it as well? Oh, yeah, I've known the knife for about 30 years now. Yeah, so, so that was, a, and again, a very exciting component. So with this huge collection of historic photos, it's going to hit the market again in, in your high noon auction in January. Do you expect that will change the parameters of what photos go for of that type? I would hope it would in, make people more interested in what they have because... We're looking at, it's it's not going to, you know, like most things, it won't dilute the market because we're looking at um, one-of-a-kind pieces. We're not looking at something that you can just go to the show and buy. Um, you're looking at the best of the best and the rarest. So, um, if anything, it, it should attract a lot of interest in people starting to buy photographs again, you know, really great photographs. And um, I think it will attract more interest in these photos because, you know, we've kind of gotten to the point where, People don't understand how important early photography was and how historic this stuff is. So hopefully we'll get the word out there and people understand. And where a lot of these that are going to be coming out, are they historic, uh, importantly historic because of the individual that was photographed or is it actually the photographer who took it or a combination of both? No, the photographer that took it at that time is not as important anymore unless you get into like William Henry Jackson or somebody the like Whittick that. Or one that, of those. Mm-hmm. That is just... Um, you know, landscapes, things like that. When you're taking photographs of people, it becomes a person. Um, we have photographs of people that um, people didn't know photos existed. Um, like who? Um, like James Beckworth, you know, things that great early photographs, types of mountain men. Hmm. Um, there's great tintypes, but mostly, you know, uh, photographs of like 14-year-old Jesse James, things like this. And what makes the McCubbin collection so important is Bob started collecting uh, 55 years ago. And when he would buy a picture of, say, Pat Garrett, he bought it from Pat Garrett's son. (laughs) So this is where everybody got their idea of who's who in the Western world was because Bob was probably the leading researcher and historian, Hmm. not only collector. So he made sure every time he found a photograph that you knew exactly who it was that it came from the right person. So he documented it. He documented everything. And how many? Is this going to be 1,800 photos? Yeah, it's only going to be, it's only going to be 300 lots, you know, because the important things, you know, the, the six great 
top-of-the-line photographs of Wild Bill Hickok will each be sold separately, but the 10 street scenes of El Paso, Texas will all be sold together. Hmm. Because uh, Is it going to be its own separate day? Or it will. It'll be on Friday. We'll do nothing but photographs on Friday and artifacts on Saturday. Yeah. So that's one worth going to. Wow. It's Put that one on your calendar, bring in folks. a whole lot of people. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'll, I think I'll show up for that one. Just interesting. It's better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know it's always tough. Um, anything else you want to tell me? I mean, you have had a very interesting life. Clearly, with a lot of stuff I didn't know. But what's going on in the future for you? Besides this, obviously, you have an important collection. But what else? Well, we're excited about Santa Fe. Our show for the first time. We moved it from Fort Worth to Santa Fe um, this year. It was the June show. That was, was in, in June, June. right? And we went back to the old Cody dates, the fourth weekend in June. And we've streamlined the show, trying to make it easier for people to know that they could trust what they were buying, which is important in our business. And um, cut down from 180 dealers to 105 dealers. And um, and it was gangbusters. That's what I heard. It and I can packed. honestly tell you that every dealer that I've talked to said it was fantastic. And it was, some of them said, like, oh, it's the old days. Yeah. And uh, so we'll probably see that again next year. Yep. Fourth weekend in June next yeah. year. We're, we're already um, going forward with it. And it's uh, it's exciting for everyone because Santa Fe is a great place to come to. Yeah. And you did that at the convention center, right? Yep. Yeah. I've, I'm already going to put that on my calendar. I won't be in Hawaii this time. I'll Good. come and see you. Uh, you can run it. I'll go to Hawaii. Yeah. <laughs> Only if I get a lot of the profits. But I don't ever want to run a show like that. It's a lot of work. I mean, people don't realize when you put on these shows, so you do an auction, but you also have 105 dealers that you have to deal mm. with and all the personalities that go along with that. You have logistics. You have, you know, what's that like to run those things? It's really, as somebody put it one time, it's like being the mayor of a town. You know, because you have security, you have people, you have to deal with the infrastructure, the everything. Um, you know, you pretty much have to run um, everything from scratch because every year is a new year. And um, it's uh, Santa Fe was great because we live here, so of course that made it a lot easier, easier on yeah. us. Um, but it's it's an extremely hard thing to do. That's why a lot of shows do um, struggle, and even our shows, you know, struggle certain years when things are bad. Um, you just have to find your way out of it. You have to figure out how do you attract younger people? Mm -hmm. How do you get the collectors to get interested again? What makes them exciting? And this is that's why Santa Fe this year was great and why it's carrying over into other shows right now because um, there was such a buzz. It was an energy. People were excited about things. People, I heard people bought things that they realized, why did I buy it later? Because they're excited at the yeah. time. Yeah. Um, and that's good, and it's going to carry over. I already see the excitement at other shows that have been going on around the country. People are excited about buying again, and uh, that's a good thing for all of us. Yeah, part of it, you think, just has to do with the economy's doing well? I think so. I think people are feeling a little bit different about it, yeah. But our, our group of dealers, and you know better than anyone because you're dealing with them, they're all getting older as well. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Do you see many young dealers that are coming into the market? Are there any? There are some. Yeah. Not as many as we'd like. But we did in Santa Fe this year. We attracted four you know, people that were in the 30s, yeah. which to us is perfect. Yeah. You know? I think this is a really, I hadn't really considered this, but what a great opportunity if you're somebody in their 20s or 30s, maybe even early 40s, to come into this business where you have the majority of people are older but are willing to give you information because I think at the point of where a lot of these guys are, they really want to share and they want to see their trade and they want to see the art 
go forward. You know, if you were wanting to find an area where you could dominate as a 30-year-old, I think this could be it. And you have all the ability of technology and understand how you can to use that, which so many, I think, in our field don't. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we clearly uh, feel it's important to have an internet presence, Facebook, all this stuff, Instagram, and we have the pod, our dealer diaries. You also have a very good website. You are clearly are involved in the internet. But, you know, I think this could be a calling out, you know. At some point, there's going to be somebody who will, you know, Brian LaBelle will need to pass that mm -hmm. baton. And you've got... Hopefully soon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I still love it. If yeah. I, you know, if I didn't love it, there's no reason yeah, to clearly, be doing Yeah, you're this. doing another show. You just yeah. started another show. Yeah. Obviously, you're not too ready yet. <laughs> <laughs> so, thank you, Brian LaBelle. And yeah. I would just thank you, tell Mark. people really out there, it. if you have old Western material, I can assure you this is the guy... Uh, I've gone to him for years. He's very knowledgeable, very ethical, and uh, you know, he's a great guy. And thanks for coming. <laughs> Thank on. you so yeah, much. Sure. Yeah, really. Thank I'm you. Super happy to have you, Brian LaBelle. Thank you.